Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com, or you can also find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. And today I am interviewing Karen Washington, who is an LMFT, and her goal in life is to make the world a better place one sex life at a time. And we're also joined by her kitty. So if we hear every now and then a meow, know that that is her co-host. <laughs> Karen, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Angela. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, I mean, what else would you like some of my uh, listeners to know about you and what you do? We'll just start with a brief introduction of you. <laughs> uh, so I am a in-group private practice up here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am the primary sex therapist at the group practice. Um, I, I consider myself a generalist in terms of there isn't much within the realm of sex therapy I won't work with. Uh, I just graduated a master's in human sexuality, actually, a couple weeks ago as well. So, oh, congratulations! Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Excellent. So, and what's your what's your website in case people are interested in finding you? Uh, so, the group website is uh, relationshipreality312.com, and you can find my profile on there and a little bit more about the practice in general. Um, I also have my profile on psychology today, but otherwise, unfortunately, I am woefully inept when it comes to technology yeah. and website stuff. So, okay. Well, so I have, um, I'm curious. So you said you talk about pretty much anything sexual related. What are some of your favorite, I know that there's a lot of different sexual issues to work on. So like, <laughs> <laughs> and I, maybe this is a weird way of asking it, but like, what are some of your favorite problems to work with. <laughs> I only therapists would understand that question. <laughs> right. That is very true. Um, well, I love to work with couples on just improving their sex life on, um, you know, whether it's, you know, reconnecting and improving the quality and um, prioritization of their sex life. I love to work with consensual non-monogamy. I love to work with, um, I don't know, I love all of it. I really do love <laughs> all of it. That's the problem. <laughs> um, no, that's that's so. why we do it. We love all your problems. That's the point. <laughs> like, this is so exciting. <laughs> Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. <laughs> Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group 
hope is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically, they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked Laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. What are some of the things that you really enjoy about helping a couple kind of find their groove again? You know, I know that's a common problem that couples face. I think that I've always had kind of a working hypothesis since much longer than I've ever studied this, that if couples can learn to talk about sex in a way that helps them relearn to prioritize it and get back into a groove of having a fulfilling sex life and however they determine what that looks like, that it just, it has ripple effects on their overall dynamic and lives. And so to see that play out and, them achieve what they define as success is so amazing. What are things you think couples need to do to make it a priority? I hear that a lot, but like, how do you kind of help people figure out what that priority is, what it should look like or what it can look like? The word should can be kind of (laughs) shaming. Yeah. I try not to use the word should very often. Um, So I agree with you on that, but things that they can do. I mean, we talk about, goodness. We, I, I like to look at how often do they even touch and connect in general, not sexually, because I am noticing that they're trying to go from zero to a hundred. So like if you have no physical interaction day to day, and then all of a sudden you want to have sex, it's like, well, who are you touching me? <laughs> and if they're not talking to each other, if they're not spending time together. So I really look at Um, Some of the other theorists I love, you know, Esther Perel talks about long-term sex is, you know, successful when it is prioritized. When we make the couple dynamic as important as we make every other thing on our calendar, we are trending in a, a direction of success. Wait, are you saying we need to put it on the calendar? Because, oh, I already have so many things on there. <laughs> well, <laughs> <Very> busy, Karen. <laughs> sure, but if we think about everything that's on your calendar, you feel pressed to get it done. You feel pressed to make time for it. You make sure it happens. And if not, you find time to get to it, don't you? Why don't we do that for our partners? Well, I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I mean, I work in the same field, right? And I, I, mm-hmm. I think that I personally have this theory that it's because people really want sex to be spontaneous. They want it to naturally happen, which I understand the value and the excitement of that spontaneity. I do get it. But the reality is we often don't have time for spontaneous things. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. We don't. And also... 
I mean, spontaneous, I feel like takes the responsibility out of it because even in the beginning of a relationship, which is the spontaneous sex idea that we hold up as the ideal, right? It's not really as spontaneous as we think it is because I mean, for me, I will speak for myself. When I was dating my partner years ago, in the beginning, we had to plan for the date, which meant that once we picked a day we were going to meet and we picked a time, I shaved my legs and I put on makeup and I found a really cute outfit and I made sure that everybody knew I was going to be busy and not to bother me that evening. You even thought about what underwear to wear. Just reminding you. And it you. matched. <laughs> it matched. It matched. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So if we go through all of that, that's not really spontaneous. Mm -hmm. I also would put perfume in certain places I wanted kissed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> How Just very to put French. all those thoughts in, right? Oh, I know. How very French. <laughs> it's like, he better kiss me right here in my elbow. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Karen, you bring up a great point. And part of that is, is that we don't realize how not spontaneous sex is. And you know what's funny? I, I w as you were talking, I was thinking about, since you mentioned the consensual non-monogamy population, mm -hmm. like think of how much planning actually has to go in for four people or three people or even just mm -hmm. two people to swap mates. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yes. there actually has to be a lot of planning. Yes, absolutely. They spend more time actually managing their relationships than doing anything else because mm -hmm. they're so focused on being clear in communication and expectations of each of the partners or each of the people involved in their polycule, right? So mm -hmm. why are we so against putting in the same effort because we're monogamous, because I live with my partner, so what, therefore, I'm allowed to take him for granted? Karen, why do you think that people, why do you think people have such a hard time with it, with that idea? I think that it's a couple of things. If I were to look at just in my lifespan, my lifespan puts me on the cusp of, I knew what life looked like before the rise of the smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. I, I saw the, the original big bag phones and the big Zach Morris monstrosity from back <laughs> in the day. So like I'm old enough to remember we didn't have as much of that. We didn't have to be on 24 seven um, with this expectation of like very little downtime, um, always going social comparisons and social capital. Our jobs are demanding stuff. And now we have this idea of busy culture where if we're not busy, there's something wrong with us. Um, I think all of those things play, but I also think that there's like, you know, over time we gain comfort and a level of intimacy with our partner. And I wonder sometimes if that does not lend itself to an unintentional laziness. Hmm. I could see that actually, you know, I definitely have seen with my couples. Yeah. Like an unintentional laziness or just a, you know, I think the assumption is it should be spontaneous and kind of naturally happens. So then when it stops being easy is probably the best way of putting it because right. we did plan before. Then we think there's something wrong with us or there's something, you know, like what, what happened to our relationship? Why is it suddenly broken? When actually I think it's kind of the natural course of the relationship too. But people who seem to do a better job with it um, know that that's the natural course and work with it and not mm -hmm. against themselves. Are you seeing that too? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if we can get beyond this idea of when I see people accept the idea that the natural course of a relationship is you cannot remain in the state that you were in the beginning for the long haul without effort. That's you the know, key. Karen, I want to ask you something. So I'd like to trail into non-monogamy a little more since I haven't talked about it in a while. I think it'll be fun today. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think that monogamous people could learn from people who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships? I think they could learn a lot. Um, and, and what part of it goes back to what we were just saying about how they spend a lot of time and effort managing the relationships and the level of communication that often goes into managing non-monogamous relationships is admirable because of how effective and um, clear they attempt to communicate with all the people involved in their relationships and their dynamics. Like, what are some of the conversations you've seen um, that you've seen people having in non-monogamy that are kind of important conversations for maybe global people, globally, not global people, that's so weird to say, you know, (laughs) but the global populations, like, here's the type of conversation that could be beneficial. I think it goes starting with um, conversations about expectations of a partner. Like, if I'm going to enter into a relationship with you... I see often, and I'm sure it's not always the case, but I do see often that non-monogamous populations are very more overt in trying to ascertain expectations of each other so that they know that they can fulfill it because they're non-monogamous. So they're also not lumping every single expectation that they have of a partner onto one person and then exhausting that person. You know what's interesting about that, Karen? Hmm. Uh, No, you're good. I want to add to that. Like, I've noticed that in monogamous relationships, people often have this sense of like implied expectation of Mm -hmm. what the relationship should look like. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of what we're sorting in a monogamous relationship is um, what do you expect that's unreasonable? Or do you even have the same expectations? Whereas to your point, like people in non-monogamous relationships don't, they may have expectations, but they really clearly communicate them or they try to figure those out with each other. Right. Absolutely. And I think there is a myth behind monogamy and Esther Pearl's talked about this and a few of her different talks as well around the idea of, you know, we once had a lot more people involved in our lives. And so therefore kind of had multiple resources to gain stuff from. And we do see that in non-monogamous communities now where they have different people that they can have different expectations fulfilled from. But monogamous people have this implied expectation that my partner is supposed to be my best friend, my confidant, my ally, my family, my friend, and my lover all the time. That's a what do you lot. Think, what do you think is the challenge or the harm that's done with that? Well, when they screw up and can't fulfill a thing or fulfill the thing in the way that you want them to, then what? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it a is of, a lot to ask. It is. I mean, I, I see people right now and, and to your point about even these implied expectations of, are you even having the same relationship then, you know, or did we end up somewhere down the road where we're married or we have kids and we realize 
this isn't even what we actually both wanted. One of us wanted this and the other one somehow ended up here. Or mm-hmm. it's not playing out the way we thought it would because we didn't actually talk about how this was supposed to go or what we had hoped it would look like. Yeah, it's so surprising to see how expectations seem to change for people over time. And again, in these monogamous relationships, people have implied expectations. And so I think about them in terms of life cycle changes. There'll be these times, like, for example, after the kids leave, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they leave the home. So I, I'm su- I'm always surprised at how different the expectations are for each partner in a relationship. Mm-hmm. One person might be like, we're, we're going to be like, we're in high school again, just having sex all the time. And the other partner might be like, you know what? I kind of want to have a more independent life. I'm kind of tired of being stuck to each other. And I've felt tied down by the kids. And yeah. now I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I've definitely seen a couple of empty nester or soon to be launching empty nester couples where, Yeah. It's like, well, how are you going to handle this? Because once you can't focus on the kids full time anymore, now what? Are now, Karen, you- what do you think are some of the challenges with people who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships? Oh, I'm sure it's a lot of work to manage that. It is definitely a lot of work. And when you, I think it, going back to in monogamous relationships, you know, we're not dealing with expectations at all. But if we were, it is only with one person. And sort of as maybe relationships evolve, I would imagine that having to evolve with several different sets of expectations may have its own pressure or trying to make sure that depending on your relationship configuration, does everybody feel as though they are being fulfilled in the ways that you have agreed upon? And at any given time, somebody may feel as though they're falling short or not getting fulfilled in the way that they had hoped to. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting. I've been, I've been doing a lot of research lately in the poly community. Um, so for those of you listeners, who don't know what I mean by that. And actually I probably use that term not always appropriately. So to be fair, putting that out there too. So polyamory is, you know, being able to love more than one consensual non-monogamy is the term that we like to use. That's more of an umbrella term. That's kind of describing the population of like people who are exploring, but in consensual non-monogamy, there can be swingers, there can be polyamorous people, there can be in open relationships. There can be not like I've heard of relationship anarchy or anarchists. Mm -hmm. So like there's multiple terms just so people listening kind of know. But one of the things that I've been um, researching is this sense of autonomy Mm -hmm. in consensual non-monogamy and um, like kind of like a a challenge against codependency in a relationship. So um, I heard you saying stuff when you were talking about like typically we'll hear people say needs in a relationship, but like I've been following some of these forums and a lot of them are kind of challenging the idea of needs. Like whose responsibility is it for meeting your needs? so mm-hmm. to speak. I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on on this needs language and <laughs> if that's the reason why you're saying the word stuff? <laughs> well, I do have a few thoughts on needs as, as a general term of, of things that come up in a relationship, right? To me, there's needs, wants, and deal breakers. Okay. So needs are things that I absolutely fundamentally have to have in order, in my opinion, these are things I need to have fundamentally for this relationship to work. Right. So I need a level of honesty. I need a certain level of communication, etc. 
Whereas I think then there's wands. I feel as though they get conflated sometimes. Okay. Um, because I think, and it goes back to, am I placing too many expectations on my partner to be this end all be all or to do everything for me when in fact, some of these things I need to be doing for myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Something I'm learning. Keep going. <laughs> well, just thinking about like maybe an attachment, right? If we think about attachment styles, anxious attachment, people, you need to make me feel safe and secure. Well, sure. But what are you doing for yourself to build your own secure attachment? Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of more of a both and maybe. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing personally, you know, I like your wants and I want to hear your deal breakers too. But like in this wants category, I'm starting to use that particular term a little more because I'm starting to think about as needs people, how how much are you actually meeting your own needs and fulfilling yourself in life? Right. Like, for example, I do know people need connection. I do know Mm -hmm. that. And I know people need to feel like a sense of comfort and security. But to your point, to what degree do you facilitate life experiences to take care of that within yourself, not just expect a partner to take care of that? Like, it's your job to fulfill my needs versus how am I fulfilling my needs Mm -hmm. as well? Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. And I agree. Like, what am I doing for me? Or am I sitting at home all day waiting for him to do a thing for me? Well, that's very interesting. Do you see that happening? Like either population monogamous or non-monogamous, how do you how do you see that kind of playing itself out with some of your couples? I mean, I definitely see some people having especially emotional needs, like referencing back to the idea of security. Well, you did a thing to make me feel anxious. Okay, so maybe we can talk about the thing they did that made you feel anxious and if this is something to be modified behaviorally or not. But, like, how are you self-soothing? Mm-hmm. How are and you trying people- to make yourself feel better about the thing they did? And is it even something you need to be anxious about? So to teach people a little bit, because I do like to teach people here and there, what is an example of self-soothing? I mean, depending on how somebody's anxiety expresses, you know, if um, am I getting anxiety is what fear of the future, fear of the unknown, right? Mm -hmm. Often motivated by that. So I'm over here worrying about something. Well, is there even something to worry about? Can I check my own reactions and find out are they even based in any kind of reality or am I fixated on this thing unnecessarily and causing myself this anxiety? Exactly. Exactly. And I'm seeing that with my clients too, where they struggle with um, like, you made me anxious. You made me angry. You did this and it's Mm -hmm. your job to fix it. But a lot of times, I don't know. I just don't know if people have been taught kind of an emotional intelligence around here's what you can do to manage this anxiety mm-hmm. uh, so that you can get into a better place. That doesn't mean you can't advocate for yourself and then like talk about your, like to your partner, here's some things that can help with this, but ultimately it's still your responsibility to manage and tend to your own anxiety. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this whole, like you made me feel a thing. I, Mm. I kind of operate from like, I will have an emotional reaction based on a thing my partner did. Sure. 
but he can't make me feel something. I, I allowed myself to feel that. And either I dealt with it or I wallowed in it. Oh, I like that too. I dealt with it or I wallowed in it. Cause like you, I know that certain things can create feelings, right? Like mm-hmm. if somebody, somebody hurts you, if somebody crosses a boundary, if, I mean, there's actual things that create emotions, but ultimately whether you take that and like sit and wallow, I like wallow. That's a good word. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to stew in this for a time or whether you take it and kind of consciously say, what's going on for me? How do I feel about this? What do I need to feel a little more calm mm-hmm. in my own skin? Mm-hmm. And then address this. It's it's just a very different process than you made me. It feels very controlling. I don't know. Well, it feels both controlling, but it also feels like, where are you in that equation then? Oh, your partner made you feel a thing? Where are you in that? What are you doing with that? Because it's still you. So in that way, it feels, I don't know, there. It almost feels like it has a hint of codependence to it. Like my emotions are totally based on what you do or don't do, which is a whole other bag of pressure then laid upon the relationship. Yeah, a lot more pressure than maybe is necessary. Mm -hmm. So um, just to shift the topic a little bit, um, I know that you have done some work in your college. Is it okay for me to mention, uh, you have it on your, your questionnaire here. So there's, um, you had mentioned in your questionnaire that there's an introduction of an ASEC certification program at Adler University, and Adler is where you work. Tell yes. me, were you kind of one of the people who got that going, or tell me a little more about that? Um, so I went to the program chair. So I teach in the couple and family therapy department right now. Um, And this is also where I got my first master's at. Um, So in the course of teaching during the first year that I was there, um, I went to the program chair and just asked about introducing uh, sex therapy as an option there. And really what I'm gunning for is something much bigger. But for now, they agreed on introducing a sex certification into the um, couple and family therapy department. So myself with department chair Christina Brown, who's originally from Missouri, and um, Katie Roach, who was a student of mine and will now be a colleague of mine, we worked our tails off to get a whole bunch of data collected as to why this is super important and relevant and sent it upstairs and the board accepted implementing ASEC certification. Oh, awesome. And what kind of got you, I always ask this of my sex therapist, but like what, what interested you in the field? Why have you gone down this path, Karen? <laughs> Honestly, I have been interested in sex as a subject matter and the dynamics of sex in relationships for as long as I can remember. I had to be like 12 or 13 years old. And I think I was reading men are from Mars, women are from Venus because it was the big book at the time and just being like, okay, there's something there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just, it's been a very, big topic of interest to me for a very long time. I did not decide to become a sex therapist though until my late twenties. And um, what were some of your steps along the way? 
Uh, so I actually went to college originally to be a pre-law major. <laughs> That's an interesting switch. <laughs> right. Um, and through some twists and turns and everything else, I was a pre-law major all the way up until, oh, geez, about 2007. I was still intending on going into law, and I was talking to my therapist at the time, and she's like, Karen, you'll be a great lawyer. She's like, I have no doubt you do fine with it. She's like, but I don't think I, I just, she's like, something tells me that's not for you. And I was like, oh, okay. Really? <laughs> I was like, so you tell me what, what should I be when I grow up? Cause in 2007, already like 25 years old, I'm, I'm a year and a half from graduating my undergrad. Finally, I was like, so what am I supposed to be? And she's like, I don't know, but not that she's like, go home and think about it. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> It's like, I'm just going to shift your whole college career here. <laughs> but, so I went home and I thought about it for like two weeks. And, and she had asked me, she's like, well, what are you good at? And how would you get paid for it then? And I thought about it and thought about it. And I was like, well, the one thing I'd love to do is talk about sex. <laughs> so I was like, well, can I get paid to talk about sex all day? And she's like, why don't you become a sex therapist? I was like, soul. All right. Literally. <laughs> What is it? I've got like four or five um, trimesters left at DePaul at the time. And I go into the uh, to the advisor's office and I was like, I have to switch my major now. <laughs> and it, I, that was it. <laughs> That's so. really funny. A counselor's like, yeah, this isn't for you. You need to shift your path. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's funny. I'm kind of bold, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to be fair, we had the relationship where she could do that. And, and I actually greatly appreciate that she did. And I thank her to this day for kind of steering me in a different direction because I love what I do. And I think she's right. I would have been a great lawyer, but I don't know that I would have had this much fun. Yeah. And this much passion too. It's really important to just love the work that we do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm curious. Um, so you created this certification program. Why do you think this is so important for marriage and family therapists to also potentially have that certification as a sex therapist? I think that as much as I love the field of MFT, marriage and family therapy, I love it. It's my home. I'm a little bit of an MFT snob. And I we do, all are. It's okay. Right? <laughs> but I do think that there is a severe disservice that in the United States, you can graduate a master's in couple and family therapy and never had taken a sex therapy course. That is pretty crazy, actually, since it's such a fundamental part of the work that we do. <laughs> right. Like, how many, is that, like, common? I, I at least had one course in my in my graduate degree as an LMFT. I'm an LMFT, too, but is it, like, right. common for them to not do a course at all? Mm-hmm. Or it's optional. What? Yes, it is <laughs> often the case that it is either not offered, it's offered one course, or it's an optional extra class that you can take as, like, um an elective or something. There are almost Just in none case it's important. Required. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Couple and family. But we don't mm. we're not gonna teach you how to talk about sex. And so I had been doing some research on non monogamy 
Mm-hmm. And I've been doing some research on other um, sex-related stuff that comes up. And I was finding over and over again that there's these statistics showing that therapists are super uncomfortable talking about sex to the point that there is, on average, less than 50% of therapists are willing to ask their clients, how's your sex life? <sighs> Oh my God. Uh, you know what's so crazy about that, Karen, is that um, quite a few of my clients will say, yeah, we went to another therapist to work on our relationship, but then they just couldn't talk about sex. So now we're mm-hmm. with you. And I'm mm-hmm. like, to me, it's like, what? No, like that's kind of a, and it's not just for couples. It's like parents, parents who have kids, they have their kids dealing with different sexual issues. How do I talk to my kids about it? parents mm-hmm. who are maybe dealing with aging parents that are entering um, residential facilities, you know, like, um, assisted yeah. living, that's the word. And like, how do they, how do they advocate for their parents who want to have sex or, right. you know, whether they're together or not, it doesn't matter. Like there's this whole world of it happening every day. Right. <laughs> so crazy. Right. Wow. And less so than 50%. less than 50% of therapists say they are comfortable even asking about it. And then if they actually have to talk about it at any length, the number drops off to like less than 25% of therapists feeling as though they could proceed. Oh my goodness. Well then of course we need some treatment. We need some education. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I see. I see. So as you were looking, you kind of noticed these differentials then, huh? So what, but it's cool that you have a program that really helped and was like, it sounds like they were on board or was it a lot of fight? <laughs> no, I mean, they're very much on board for one. Um, the department chair is amazing. She said she had been wanting to do this anyways. Um, and it was in the list of things that she wanted to see get implemented at Adler regardless. And so here I came full steam ahead and was like, well then let's do the thing. Um, and Adler, honestly, um, it took a little while, but they said, let's try it like this. And like I said, I'm hoping to grow it. I'm hoping to make it more. I'm hoping to make it bigger because we have way too many therapists out there. And like you said, how many therapists are doing a problem? And you're talking about just quote unquote regular sex, right? Mm-hmm. Like we haven't even ventured into how bad the numbers get. If we're going to talk about anything that falls outside the realm of what vanilla sex, vanilla heteronormative, yeah. Right mononormative, heteronormative, vanilla-oriented sex, which, yes, I understand there's connotations around vanilla being both positive or negative. So please understand I recognize that about that word. Um, So, yeah, if we want to talk about non-monogamous sex, if we want to talk about kinky sex, uh, if we want to talk about more than one person present at the time, like now we're getting into much greater discomfort in terms of the therapist, which is only doing a disservice to the clients. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things I wanted to maybe, because we're getting towards the end of the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this recent research and publication you did, because I'm sure it kind of ties into what we're talking about. So what was your recent publication? And why don't you share it for our audience? Um, so the title of the journal article is exploring the connection between autoimmune disorders and painful sex in ova having bodies. Okay. 
So, um, first I'll go through and say that the term OVA having was very specific to um, what we were doing in terms of an inclusive set of language. We didn't want to use woman or female because we recognize that not all people that have ovaries identify as woman. And yet there is something very specific about the uh, biological component that has the links to both the way in which painful sex expresses and um, the tendency of uh, being diagnosed with autoimmune disorders. So what are some of the things you found in your research? Well, it started with, I noticed it in my practice. I have a, I have noticed a statistically significant number of the persons I see that report painful sex also have a comorbid diagnosis of an autoimmune disorder. And that got me wondering, like, is there something there that's having both of those things show up so frequently um, in so many different clients, too? And the autoimmune disorders aren't even the same, but they're all reporting an autoimmune disorder and they're all reporting painful sexual experiences. So um, myself. Like what's an example of one of the autoimmune, a couple of autoimmune disorders? Because not everybody knows which, like, you know, just two or three that are common ones that might be comorbid. I don't know that they're common, but ones that I'm seeing are like um, rheumatoid arthritis and painful sex. Would there, fibromyalgia be one of Oh, one of absolutely. Them? Fibromyalgia, okay. MS, um, okay. Crohn's, um, EDS, okay, so POTS. Some kind of, some kind of like, um, yeah, autoimmune, autoimmune disorder. Okay, we're good. Right. So, right. so what are some of the, so you're seeing links with people who, having, who have those disorders or diseases having painful sex? Correct. I am, I'm seeing that they... During assessment, they're telling me they're coming in because sex has become painful or has always been painful. And then as I'm going through and collecting more of their history, they're also reporting that they have an autoimmune diagnosis. And so my uh, former student, Helen Wyatt, and I got together and spent months researching that there is overlap in terms of the physiological processes that occur that lead to autoimmunity that also lead to painful sex. And so the first thing that we published back in, it got published April 24th in the journal of feminist family therapy. Um, that was us doing the content analysis and really looking to make sure like the thing that we're looking at, the comorbidity I'm noticing there, there's a link there. There's something definitely there. So we are actually in the process of applying for IRB approval to start doing um, qualitative research around this on a much larger level. Gotcha. What are, what are some of the things you're hoping to find? I'm not sure yet. Um, to be That's really honest. Research, right? <laughs> it's like, we're just going to fiddle around and figure out what we find. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I know I have questions and I have so many questions because part of it then goes into, well, the medical field isn't really paying attention to it. Right. And mm -hmm. is this treatable? Is it 
I mean, it's treatable, but you know what I mean? Like, what what's it going to take to treat it? Is there a way maybe to prevent this from happening? Is there, um, is there, what are the best methods possible? And can we start, you know, maybe organizing something around this? Um, because I've also noticed, because again, it's over having, um, a lot of my clients are getting told by their doctors, you know, that their sex life shouldn't be a priority given everything else that they're dealing with. Oh, I see. They kind of push it down. Yes. They dismiss it or it's not that bad or you should just be happy to be alive or, um, you know, like, well, we'll deal with that later. It's not that important. And it's yeah, like, but when's later going to happen? You have a lifelong illness that you're dealing with. So, like, should I just wait till I'm dead? You know, like right. later. Right. It's just, it is. It's very dismissing, as you say. And so, it, well, I, I've definitely noticed how like people kind of get challenged by this because they truly want like people. Uh, sex life is part of quality of life, and um, mm-hmm. when doctors dismiss that, then it feels very disheartening. I mean, that's why we get, well, that's why we get those clients, right? Because they're like, I want to talk to somebody who cares about my sex life. Clearly my doctor doesn't. (laughs) Exactly. And so I'm just wondering, like, what can we do with this to maybe change that? I gotcha. Well, so what kinds of things do you want to see happen? I'd like to see, (laughs) um, I mean, I'd like to see definitely more collaboration between sex therapists and physicians on a much more holistic level where this can be just as important as everything else about their quality of life. I mean, they already have to, somebody with a chronic illness already has to deal with diminished quality of life. They have to deal with some Mm -hmm. form of an adjusted expectation for their quality of life as it is. Why can't they have this thing? Yeah, it just seems like something else to kind of attain. Well, Mm -hmm. Miss Karen, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, but we are actually towards the end of our time because, well, you know, (laughs) I have limited time for everyone. So for anyone listening in, what is kind of a final thought you'd like to leave them with or even like a re-stating of any links, of course, too. This is where you get to do a good pitch, but then also just a hey, this is important and I care about it. (laughs) So what are your (laughs) final thoughts? (laughs) To me, sex is important and I care about it. Um, But I think that everybody should just, I think everybody deserves a safe, sane, consensual sex life that brings them pleasure in the way they define it. That sounds wonderful. And how do they find you again? So you can find me on relationshipreality312.com. You can find me on Psychology Today. And that's about it. Because like I said, I'm terrible with every other form of trying to market myself. So... Yeah, that works just fine. You're good. <laughs> All right. Well, Karen, this, we have been speaking with Karen Washington. Thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. Thank you and for the invitation, Angela. You're welcome. You betcha. And then for those of you listening, this has been www.aboutsexpodcast.com. You can also find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Thank you all for listening and stay kinky, St. Louis.